Welcome to Ciao Bella, hosted by me, Erica Firpo, a travel journalist based in Rome. Each episode of Ciao Bella, I sit down with Italy's creators, contemporary artists and artisans, designers, culinary experts, heritage brands, and innovative estites, and more who are defining and redefining 21st century Italy. Pull up a chair and join in. Hey, ciao, Bella. Welcome back. Today, I am in Modena. I'm in the countryside of Modena, which is in Emilia-Romagna, the breadbasket of Italy, um, an area that I particularly love for its food. I mean, I think everybody loves for its food and the art. And I'm sitting here with someone that I also love because she is the embodiment of all of that. She's very artistic. She's very food-oriented. I'm with Lara Gilmore. How are you? Hi, it's so great to have you here, Erica. Well, thank you. I, I'm, and by the way, I should let everybody know, I'm not just sitting in the countryside, I'm sitting at Casa Maria Luigia, which is, would you like to describe a little bit about that? Casa Maria Luigia is um, our newest endeavor. It's a 12-room um, guest house in bed and breakfast. I haven't really been able to figure out exactly how to define it yet. I like to think of it as uh, Osteria Francescana, our main restaurant with 12 rooms, uh, because the heart of Casa Maria Luigia is all about food and not just about fine dining, but also about embracing the products from this region, Emilia Romagna, the flavors from this region, the incredible ingredients that come from here, the agricultural landscape that we're surrounded by, um, which is part of this breadbasket, and having our guests really feel that they are immersed in a specific place, in a specific time. Uh, we uh, were so lucky to stumble upon this property two and a half years ago. We fell in love with it and took a huge uh, leap of faith and decided that we were able to open up, um, to renovate and to open up a, a, a different kind of hospitality. We've run a restaurant for almost 25 years now in the center of Modena. Yeah, let's backtrack on that. So, Oh yeah, we have a small restaurant in the center. Yeah, a small <laughs> unknown restaurant in the, middle, in the middle of Modena. So 26 years ago, you came to Modena. You married Massimo Bottura, this guy. And, um, you know, you came to this place where it's known for prosciutto, lambrusco, uh, mortadella, parmigiano, balsamico, Ferrari. I mean, it's the, like basically the best of Italy is from here. And you married this guy and you became his business partner or you guys are business partners, your life partners. And he launched a restaurant that became the world's best. Is that, well, is that know, easy to say? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, when I met Massimo back in New York, we met uh, very serendipitously in a little cafe in Soho. He was taking a sabbatical year off from the restaurant that he had was running at that time in the countryside called Trattoria del Campazzo. And we really met by chance. I was um, trying to enter into the into the contemporary art world, whether it was curating or working for magazines and uh, making ends meet by working in restaurants as a waitress. And I got this job. And uh, that was just this great meeting of minds. And um, he invited me to Modena to come see where he lived and where he was from. And I fell in love with the place because it was, you know, not everybody knows where Modena is. It's kind of off the beaten track and yet it's the middle of everything. It's right smack in the middle of the country. It's in uh, very easy to get to by trains, by planes, by highways. And yet it was a city that for me was a completely new discovery in terms of its food culture, um, and um, and so through Massimo's eyes, I was able to discover all these amazing things about Italy that I didn't know. I actually didn't marry Massimo first. I married the restaurant first. Oh, wow. So um, we uh, decided to was uh, a open commitment. a restaurant together. <laughs> and the opening day of the restaurant, I happened to be in the United States for unplanned circumstances. And on that uh, half an hour before the opening, Massimo called me in New York and asked me basically to marry him over the phone. And um, years later, I realized that that marriage proposal was really a marriage proposal <laughs> to marry the restaurant and to marry a project and to marry an idea. And uh, we got married three months later. The restaurant opened. And it's been our lifetime. It's been our first baby and our still what keeps us together and it keeps us focused. Um, Austria Francescana was uh, Massimo's provocation, thinking about in a very in an area where traditional food is parallel with religious practices and uh, yes. tortellini, you know, if mm. you don't believe in God, you believe in tortellini. <laughs> really trying to shake up that tradition 
but in a positive way, in uh, in a constructive way, not to necessarily deconstruct the Emilian kitchen or the Italian kitchen, but reconstruct it to think about the things that maybe had gone a little bit astray during the years, especially during the economic boom and some of, you know, losing quality and focus on what were the true um, flavors and ingredients that needed to be used in that kitchen and just trying to give it a little bit of shape and future. And so that became our restaurant project and years of difficulty, struggle, but eventually over the last 25 years, we were able to become a very well-known restaurant and a restaurant that is actually bringing people from all over the world to Modena. So here I am arriving in Modena, never having spent lots of time in Italy, but never really understanding where Modena was or what it was about. And then my whole life has been dedicated the last 25 years to making people know where Modena is and get them to come to Modena and eat in Modena and walk around the town. And now that we have Casa Maria Luigia, actually spend 24, 36, 48 hours in this beautiful part of the country. So we're about 12 kilometers from, from the center, is that correct? 12 kilometers by bike, yep. 12 kilometers by bike, On right? On the bike trail. <laughs> I haven't done it, I don't know exactly by car. Um, but it's really, it's like a 10 to 15 minute drive. And we're in the full countryside, which I love because it's also really flat. There's a lot of great trees, a lot of green, um, but it's really flat. And I don't know why this makes me so happy. Like you can see fields, for miles. Big sky, big sky. I the know. light here is very particular um, because of the fields, the different changing colors of the fields. Right now, a lot of fields have been harvested. So we've got this really earthy color. The, earth, the, the soil has been tilled. And so the light that reflects is colors of brown, but then it'll start to be green even in early January in February when the early grasses start to come in and you know you see this whole transformation of the countryside around you which is amazing and I didn't know anything about this until two years ago when I started we started renovating and I was here every morning at 7 30 to open up for the the construction team and I started to see the changing of the seasons from a completely different point of view which was agriculture so wait wait so two years ago, you weren't even in, in the suburbs ever, not even this, and you weren't in the country. So you come out here and you and Massimo find this property and you say, it looks like something we could live in, even though we're, or we, could, we could do something with, even though you guys are sit or Modena people, town people. Backstory, <laughs> we walked into this beautiful property that had been abandoned for about 10 years, but had great bones. It was not falling apart. It had, you know, roofs were still intact. Um, you could see the, you know, where the renovations had gone on over the last 200 years. So this uh, is the, the building family, 200 years old. Yeah, the family had left um, about 10 years ago and there were, you know, on the top floors, an apartment had been renovated in the 1980s. There was another wing of the, of the house that hadn't been touched since the 1960s. There was a beautiful carriage house that had been turned into this like awful garage and custodian's apartment. Everything was resounding though with this great sense of waiting for people like I we walked into that space and I just had this feeling that the house was waiting for people waiting for to be filled with people and immediately Master and I looked at each other and we thought you know we were looking for a small country home for weekends because we're working all the time we never have any time to get away I wanted something close by a place to bring our dogs to have a garden and uh, when I when we saw the property I thought well it's not just it's too much for us we need to fill it with people and how are we going to fill it with people Massimo had his eyes on the carriage house he said this carriage house could be so beautiful for a small restaurant uh, we have so many requests to do a dinner party for 12 or for 20 our restaurant can't cater to those kinds of numbers it's a small restaurant with 12 tables and so all of a sudden he was thinking carriage house this is going to be where we're going to create a second Austria Francescana I was looking inside the rooms and I went up the stairs filled with cobwebs and it already looked like a perfect structure to have a small bed and breakfast. I love breakfast in Emilia Romagna. Nobody really has breakfast in Emilia Romagna. Everyone's oh gone on to their coffee mm -hmm. and cornetto, mm -hmm. the bar, five-minute breakfast. But there's so many incredible ingredients coming from my Anglo-Saxon <laughs> American background, you know, with great eggs, frittata, sausages, gnocca fritto. I've always been dreaming about pulling these ingredients together and making them into the ideal breakfast. And so we just started dreaming each in its in our own direction about what the house could become. And without really drawing up a business plan or thinking it through properly, we thought three rooms, then six rooms, then nine rooms, and we finally landed on the number 12. 
So there are 12 rooms, and the rooms are beautiful. I think, though, I will tell you, the two things that just I, when I walked in here, I, the first thing is I walked into the entrance, and I was like, oh, I feel like I'm at home because the couch, the magazines, the, I don't know. The, I was just like, this just feels like I'm, I'm in someone's house, and I, I think it might be my house. <laughs> and I loved it. It felt, immediately had this homey feeling, and then the art. Because this is, I mean, I, I know that everything that you both do is about food, but I also love how much you guys love art, contemporary art. It makes me feel so good because, you know, you see a lot of these, these pieces in museums, you see them in magazines, but you never really see people living with them. And this is, for me, that kind of experience where you, you get to live with incredible works of art the way they, I think they were meant to be. I don't, I don't think they were all meant to be on yeah, a wall. I don't wall. think they were meant to be locked up, you know, either in a collector's vault because they're so valuable, you can't even look at them, um, or in, locked away in someone's home. Or um, And when we opened Austria Francescana, we had a very small, uh, very humble collection, but as we began collecting more art, the first thing we wanted to do was put it in the walls of the restaurant to share it. We felt that it was kind of a landscape of ideas and a way of communicating with our guests visually what we were thinking about, what was on our mind, the things that we liked, um, images that were stimulating for us, sculptures or art that was provocative. And um, we never had a doubt that Casa Maria Luigia would be filled with art. Some of the art comes from uh, Austria Francescana, things that have been taken off the walls and either migrated to our house and were, you know, in, a, in someone, one of my children's bedrooms. And then I thought, well, God, that would be great for uh, bedroom number 12 or number 7. And then other we works that we specifically bought for the house. Number 1, because we had always been dreaming about buying, for example, the I an Ai Weiwei piece. Ah, and when the Lego we found, piece. When we found this Ai Weiwei triptych in Lego that was a perfect size for the main living room, um, it would have never fit in our home. It would have been a shame to have had it in our home. And it's just so... In a way, I don't want to use the word satisfying, but it gives me so much joy to see people's reaction to a piece of art like that. And not everybody likes it. Some people are like, oh, how is it possible? So the, the images of the artist, Chinese dissident artist, very iconoclastic. It's actually a self-portrait of him based on a photograph holding a 2,000-year-old um, traditional vase. The first image, he's looking at the camera with the vase. The second image, he's looking at the camera and his arms are raised and the vase is dropping like, uh-oh. <laughs> the third image is the vase crashing on the floor into pieces. And there's some people who are appalled. How could you break something like that? How can you go and be so disrespectful of the past? But that series of images for us is so hopeful because in a way it's saying we can look at the past and we can break with the past, but look at the possibilities. Look at everything you have on the floor, all those pieces, picking them up, putting them together, reconstructing them, and turning them into a new kind of future. Without disregarding the past, you're actually bringing it forward, taking the best of the past and bringing it into the future is a message that is very powerful for us. Then, of course, the fact that it's in Lego makes it friendly <laughs> it makes and it fun. It's not so just like playful, yeah. oil painting, you know, from Caravaggio. Or it's Lego. It's also going to be eternal. It's going to be the like the last standing, you know, thing that's in that house. No matter what happens, five hundred years from now, those Legos will be around. And then you'll probably have. I, th I think that I feel like the Tracy Emin piece will be around on the walls. <laughs> I mean, there's so many great pieces. That so we have a Tracy Emin piece that when Massimo found it at auction, he showed me that the picture on the on the on the, in the auction catalog is like, oh, this would be so great. The piece is called Red, White, and Fucking Blue, <laughs> and um, and you know I'm American, so I thought immediately, oh my God, well I don't want people to think that you know. I'm, you know, not a good American citizen or I don't love my country. I've been living as an expat for so many years. But as we put, we put that up on the wall and I realized the minute that we put it up that that red, white and fucking blue is not a negative about your national colors or your city. It's like red, white and fucking blue. Like we are doing this. We are yep. going all out. We are going to be as red, white, and flecking boo as we can in everything we do. It's an affirmative. It's saying we're not going to hold back on anything, whether it's the art, the food, the landscape, trying to do the best we can with our, you know, organic gardening, creating a home away from home for travelers. Uh, and so for me, that red, white, and fucking blue is like, yes, 
the affirmation. Well, let's yes, talk, we can. Let's let's talk a little bit about the landscape here because this is a beautiful, beautiful property. And I know that you mentioned there's a beautiful pool. There's the tennis court with the Joseph boys. Um, there's the swing that I was swinging on, and then in the front there is a huge field. Right. What's in that field? <laughs> <laughs> well, Erica knows what I'm, I'm so, you know, one of the, I've, I've fallen into many roles taking on this project and um, I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm a doer. I'm, I, I like to think things through, but more than anything, I like to think things through while I'm doing other things. And so I'm the main gardener here, vegetable garden, flower arrangements, making sure the rooms are in order. I just had someone come and fix a curtain and of course I want to be there I one thing I've learned about living in Italy is that it's all about your human relationship human with rela people exactly whether you have an artisan who's helping you upholster a sofa someone who's going to frame your beautiful works of art or even help you hang them on the wall property lighting etc cetera, etc cetera. and um, so with this property we have this very large field about two hectares of land um, that was um, basically uh, grown for alfalfa for feeding um, parmigiano reggiano cows which is really great but I kind of felt like we could do more with that so um, farro spelt is a, a heritage grain a beautiful grain that we use in our kitchen at Osteria Francescana we grind it to make flour for our bread, so a percentage of our bread has spelt in it. And we also use the whole grain for our staff meals and some of our dishes in Francescana, but even more so at Maria Luigia. So I decided to plant farro and organically. And a tr uh, farro is also a great um, grain to transform a non-organic uh, field into an organic field. It takes a couple of years. But now I have... I don't know, 20 bags of huge bags of farro that I have to find someone to grind to turn into the flour. How am I going to get it there? Where is it going to be stored? How am I going to, you know, all of a sudden I have all these in incredible uh, projects to solve, uh, which is very stimulating for me. Um, hopefully we'll be able to package some farro for all our guests at Casa Maria Luigi. So they'll go home with that and a recipe of something they can make and that maybe they've eaten here and they can in our bring, home they can kitchen. Pushing like pushing farro. I never, I can't call it spelt. I don't, I just don't spelt like. Spelt just isn't such. A, it's not such a nice word. in no. farro. Farro is like so beautiful and hearty it's, yeah, and it's like wholesome. sensual. And I love it. It's you like can use carnal. it in soups. It's kind of like a barley. Um, but it's a little bit crunchier and nuttier than barley and actually is much harder to overcook. So for those of us who are not brilliant in the kitchen, you can go wrong with farro and pretty much fix it up in any way you want to. We make um, salads. I love cold salads with farro. I love it. So another thing that we do at Casa Maria Luigi to create that sense of home away from home, um, in the carriage house we ended up creating our restaurant experience. Oh, we have a right. professional kitchen there where we serve both breakfast and an evening a nine-course tasting menu from Austria Francescana. But in the homey, comfy, green kitchen of Casa Maria Luigia, we have this amazing giving refrigerator. I call it like the giving tree. I don't know if you ever read the book by oh, yes. Shel Silverstein yeah. the giving tree. Well, we have the giving refrigerator. So this refrigerator is like um, my, my dream refrigerator. I grew up with a mom who was cooking all the time and then Left home, went to college, boarding school, went to college, off on my own, and I and I and I often long for that refrigerator that had so many yummy things, leftovers in it, and mm -hmm. I could always just pull out something. There was something to eat, so I wanted to create here for our guests who are travelers. Oftentimes, they're coming from Rome or Florence or Venice, and on their way to another part of Italy, and maybe they stop for a day or two or just a night. The idea that they could open up this refrigerator on their own, they don't need a waiter or a server to do it for them and find these small singular portions of delicious healthy snacks whether it's fresh salads from our garden or a farro salad on Saturdays we have chickpeas with yogurt and um, whatever vegetables in season whether it's cucumbers or peppers or moving into um, pumpkin and cauliflower season we have fresh fruits in there we have Yummy little snacks. Uh, maybe later we'll go in and see what's oh. what what today's menu is. But it's constantly changing. I think it's constantly I'm seasonal. Sure Darius has and, already been there. <laughs> um, two comments that um, that remain with me was um, young American who's living in Berlin, a journalist working for Bloomberg, uh, say in his 30s. He walked in and he said, "Oh my God!" Opened the refrigerator and said, "I feel like 
I'm back at my parents' house, but even better because my parents aren't here and there's a bottle of wine that I can open and I can sit down and have a snack and it's not a full meal. It's not restaurant. But it's that sense that you're just sitting at the kitchen counter having a meal. And at that kitchen counter, someone else is going to come along who's staying at Casa Merluigia and open the refrigerator and get the same thing you got or something else and sit beside you. And inevitably, that's going to break into a conversation of where you're from and where you're going and what you're doing and why are you here. So someone from Sydney can meet another person from the UK or from Berlin or from Atlanta, Georgia, Taiwan. We've had guests from all over the world. And once again, creating a space... For community, however temporary it may be, the community can be formed around two people eating at a countertop who've never met, serving themselves, you know, a glass of wine or pouring a glass of wine for someone else or saying, would you like me to put on water for tea? It's amazing how people are so intuitive about a kitchen and they actually, once they've eaten something, their fork, their plate... They tend to just put it in the sink, or I've seen even our guests put things in the dishwasher. So there's this amazing sense of... Um, for the time that you're here at Casa Merluigia, you're part of something. You're part of this community of Casa Merluigia. Well, I think you feel. I think. I think that you do. You feel like you're at home. And I. I remember when I stayed here in 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 June. I stood in front. of I opened up the refrigerator and I did one of my favorite things to do. Is I like just opening a refrigerator and staring <laughs> into it. It's like my thing. I just stand there and I like to look and I like to just. And it makes me happy. Like you know, it makes me sad when sometimes our refrigerator doesn't have like the days that it doesn't have a lot of food and then you, then you just close it immediately. Right. But when it's full, you just you get this sense of satisfaction and I just stood there and I was like this is great like I just I'm looking in I was like I'm gonna have that salad it's maybe later really, I'll have a snack it's exactly and it's very stimulating for our team as well so we have this great culinary team and um, not only are they working on breakfast and starting the wood-burning oven that a lot of our breakfast um, uh, treats are made in there but then they create all these single portion dishes for our guests they get put in the refrigerator Every once in a while, they're checking on the kitchen to see if they need more grassini or crackers or dip or if something is, you know, all out of the cupcakes. They have some more they've made upstairs, so they fill up the refrigerator again. And then the next morning when they start working on breakfast, they go in like little, you know, mouse mice and they look in there. And this sense of satisfaction when the refrigerator is empty and they know that people have had all these delicious mm-hmm. things is um, is really rewarding for them and different than a restaurant service. Restaurant service, you've plated something beautifully plated. Plate comes back clean. This is just much more about um, nourishing rather than making it kind of a theatrical experience and um so there's a lot of love going on there and exchange back and forth you know that's when we were when we were driving over here and i asked you in the car i said how how different is this this kind of hospitality than a restaurant hospitality that's what you were saying that it's it's nourishing it's it's in it's a in fact i'm gonna let you put it in your own words what you were telling me earlier today there's yeah there's a lot of um there's a lot of sharing going on here which often um, can happen in small doses in a restaurant uh, like Osteria Francescana, but it's a very short exchange because our guests are at the table for three, maybe four hours. We have an opportunity to tell our stories and um, see the experience they're having at the table. But it's how do you prolong that? And so Casa Maria Luigia has been a way of us being able to share many of the things we love, not just fine dining or Massimo and our culinary team's beautiful creations, but also to share the love of gardening, to share feelings about contemporary art or reactions to contemporary art. Your music collection. And then the music room. I haven't told you about the music room. So the other reason that we ended up um, purchasing this house was um, when we first saw it, the former owner, um, very uh, well-cultured woman, uh, book lover, had created in one of the rooms this incredibly beautiful library. Handmade, carved, wood library. Uh, Massimo went in, and the first thing that he started thinking was, my vinyl, vinyl record collection. Finally, all those records that no longer fit on our shelves at home, they've been sitting on the floor, are going to have a home. Incredibly enough, very shortly after we saw the property, before we put a bid on it, Massimo was contacted by a recent widow. Her husband uh, was a surgeon here in Modena. We never had an opportunity to meet him. Not only a surgeon, but he was a record collector and collecting (laughs) incredible, rare jazz records. 
So in his last will and testimony, he had written, because he had read an article about Massimo, that Massimo was passionate about music, he had written that he would love for the collection to be offered first to Massimo Batura because he wanted this collection to stay in Modena and to go in the hands of someone who was going to love it and take care of it, but also with the idea that maybe it would be shared someday with other people. And so... That is amazing. The record collection got bought without even looking at one record. He had this incredible, you know, Excel, you know, file of seven, 8,000 records that he had collected. And so... The records were the first thing that were moved into this house before it even had been renovated. The library was in perfect condition. And so there you go. The record room is for everyone to take out a record. Massimo's added also some old rock and roll, some country, some classical music. So there's a little bit of... um, What's taste the, in music for everyone? I don't. I when I walked in there and I saw and I'm I'm not super tech. I I know what a record player is. Um, I don't know what is that uh, the recording machine. I don't even know what to call it. So in <laughs> addition it is beautiful. to um, so in addition to um, our uh, vinyl record collection. We also found what I call like the new Spotify, which is 1970 Maxwell reel to reel tape. So reel to reel tape is about three hours of recordings. Uh, we bought about eight of these uh, from a. Uh, there are these like jazz record dealers around the world. Um, uh, recordings of old jazz records on this reel to reel tape recorder. It's like you know an, the older version of the tape recorder. Uh, it's connected to our stereo system, so we have jazz running freely, freely through the house. We can then, after three hours, either rewind it or change the reel-to-reel. Um, we've all become experts at reel-to-reel. At one time, that's how people listen to music. Yeah. If they, you know, you didn't have your cassette tape or your or your eight-track tape. This was, you know, pre-CDs and everything else. But it creates this really great soundtrack because you can hear all of the distortion, sh- all yeah. of the. Um, details of the vinyl record and uh, creates mood and atmosphere in addition to the music itself. Oh, it's beautiful. It is so beautiful. And the sound quality is great. Like I sat in there and I was just, I wanted to, I wanted to touch it, but I was like, I will so never touch it. So there's one chair in that room. <laughs> I've been able to sort of sneak in a little stool and a kind of like a small little lounge chair in the corner, but basically it's all about this one chair in front of the stereo. And it's, uh, the chair is made by Capellini. It's called the Proust. And uh, it's designed by Alessandro Mendini. And it's this huge kind of ironic play on a classical sort of armchair that's very overdone and very elaborate. And it's painted all over in these different colors. And the idea is that that room is for someone to sit down, put on their favorite record, and have a moment to themselves. Other things have happened in that room. There's been parties where there's, you know, 10 people gathering in there. But my favorite night in Casamere Luigia, we had a couple visiting us from Texas. It was their 45th wedding anniversary. They had had dinner at Francescana and Maria Luigia, so our nine-course tasting menu here on the property the night before. And um, that night, they decided not to make any dinner reservations. They were drinking wine, had a little snack in the kitchen, and then they started putting on records, and they were dancing. Just the two of them in the house. Everyone was out eating somewhere else, and they pretty much had the whole house to themselves and spent three hours dancing and putting on records. And to me, that's the heart and soul of Casamir Luigia. Find your space. Try to create as many different possible atmospheres as you can, whether it's a cocktail room, the kitchen, the gardens, there's a little cabin in the middle of the uh, the property where two lovers could sit or someone who wants to read a book or just meditate, but create these spaces for people to have new memories. I like that. I'm thinking maybe, I, I'm, I'm hoping I get Darius to dance tonight. Oh, we'll, well, see, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. <laughs> he does not dance. That's a beautiful story. Now, I have a question for you because I ate something for breakfast so I know that the Emilia, Emilia Romagna breakfast or the Emilia breakfast is really important to you. And I don't think anybody, it's, it's, not, it's not something that you see at the, at the coffee bar. Uh, well, I don't think it's something that actually exists anymore. And it's based on a lot of uh, stories that were told to me by a lot of the farmers here in this area. So once I got to know the farming community and we'd sit around and talk, that their parents and their grandparents would go out into the fields at 4.30, 5 in the morning, as soon as there was light, 
and then would come back after their first three hours of work, seven, eight, nine o'clock, and have breakfast. And breakfast was cotechino, and breakfast was gnocco frito, and it was a slice of prosciutto or mortadella, and it was really like much more of a, a very hearty meal to give them the energy and the calories to then go back out in the fields. That's what I had. It was the cotechino with maybe some zabaglione on a gnocco And as brizolone underneath. That was... So we've put together this combination, umami. which is um, not a traditional combination. You're not going to find it anywhere else unless we've had an influence in the way people think about breakfast here. But basically, this brizolone is a cake from Mantova made with almonds, a little bit of brown sugar. Um, we've put a little salt in it to make it between savory and sweet, uh, turn it into a cookie instead of a cake. It's very dry and crunchy, but it has this great almond base to it, almonds and butter. Cotechino sausage is typically eaten at Christmas, and it's a sausage that's boiled, so it has a little bit of a gelatin quality to it. I've never really loved it, even though it has great flavor. So I always thought about how could it make cotechino more delicious, and the idea was putting it into a wood-burning oven. We were given this incredible wood-burning oven made here in Modena. The one that says Maria Luigia. It says Maria Luigia on it. Um, I think we made pizza in it once, and then decided, hey... Let's give ourselves a challenge of thinking about everything else that we could make in this oven that isn't necessarily pizza. So we had Brussels sprouts in the garden and started mm. roasting Brussels sprouts. Uh, started thinking about focaccia. How could we make focaccia in there? Jessica Roosevelt, our head chef, who'd come from Austria Francescana, got inspired. Let's try to see if we can make a frittata and cook it in a cast iron skillet Ooh. inside the wood-burning oven. Everything taking on this kind of smoky quality. And Cotechino inevitably went, in that, went into that oven and became the most delicious thing that Ever. you want to have in the morning. And so it's crunchy on the outside. It's lost all of its sort of fat or, or you know, extra grease. It's all been um, uh, drained out of it and then gets crunchy. And so it's only flavor and this beautiful, light, um, I don't know how to describe it. Then we put zabayone on top. Which is, to me, the icing <laughs> on the cake. Oh, my goodness. So you have sweet and savory. The almond biscuit. It's a little bit of an umami. Yep. It's, uh, it is morning umami. It's not too many calories at the end of the day. I've done some sort of like calorie count. It's less calories than a Big Mac. It's less calories than a lot of things we eat in our daily lives. I think it's less calories than a bran muffin. So much more delicious. And it's got this sense of nourishment and being hearty and you're in the countryside. So I'm very happy with with that that part of the breakfast and and just being able to introduce something to this very traditional local but in a completely different context so i have i have two questions that i think our listeners will want to know the first question is can anybody i know anybody can stay here but what if can anybody come to dinner here do you yes. have to stay here you don't have to stay here okay so um we only have 24 seats and it's uh, picnic style, right? Uh, is and that what it's, it's called? Three communal tables. Communal tables. Uh, <laughs> three communal tables. Each seats eight people. Um, we have an open kitchen. So part of the experience of dining at this version of Francescana is also being able to see the kitchen at work. There's no wall between the kitchen and the dining room. Our guests are also invited to stand up and see what people are doing or see how something is plated. Um, I think that adds an element of surprise, but also great joy. Someone who has been wanting to dine with us and then actually not only get to eat the plate, but see how it's made. Um, but there's so much amazing energy that happens from the moment people sit down at the table before they're even served their first dish, the sense of, hi, I am Laura. And uh, you meet your neighbor, you start having a conversation. They could be two people with completely different political points of view, different age groups, different economic background, you know, so many differences that all come together at the table and everyone is sort of equal at the table. And there's always a moment that they can share their st their stories, their lives, um, their experience of having that meal together. Uh, so it's been very uh, exciting to see that come to life and to see that happen. And that you were saying... Um, so anyone can... So basically, our guests who are staying here, um, if they're staying for two nights, one night they'll eat there, 
but they're not necessarily going to eat two nights there. The menu is the same. And so that opens up places for um, uh, people who are traveling through Modena. Maybe they weren't able to get a table in Osteria Francescana and they want to have an Osteria Francescana experience. So um, a table can be booked, a place at the table can be booked on our website at uh, .com. Uh You don't have to be sleeping here. I think it's best to have the full experience, but we welcome outsiders as well. And part of that experience you were, you were saying earlier is that it's a nine courses? It's a nine course set menu. So I don't think of it as a restaurant, but I really think of it as a dining experience. Mm -hmm. um, the beverages, uh, there's a beverage pairing included that could be alcoholic or non. Mm. Uh, the non-alcoholic are all kinds of fun non-alcoholic cocktails that we make and mixtures of juices and herbs. And uh, we try to keep it fun and exciting for our diners. Uh, the beverage pairing changes. Uh, all Italian wines, a lot of small producers. We go from very local to down to the tip of Sicily. Uh, we like to introduce our guests to wines that they may have never have heard of or tried before. And so that's exciting for us as well. And it's... Um I know, I've, I've read a few things, it's the greatest hits. What, what can one expect on the menu? Um, so we, I like to divide up the menu into three, uh, since it's nine courses, into sort of three moments. First three moments are our starters. And our starters um, are some of the dishes that maybe no one has heard about. They are one, right now we're serving a dish called Tribute to Normandy, which is based on Massimo's first experience leaving Italy and traveling with his older brothers to the coast of Normandy and Mont Saint-Michel and having this first encounter with unknown foods and getting out of his comfort zone and how that was sort of the early seed planted for him to, for the curiosity that then grew within him to become a chef and travel and eat strange and unknown foods. Uh, then we move on to a dish called um, Autumn in New York, which is a tribute not only to the city of New York, but also to Billie Holiday, who rendered the jazz standard Autumn in New York so famous. Um, it's a memory of cooking with Dave Chang, uh, shopping in the um, Union Square Farmer's Market, and also an ode to the seasons, because Autumn in New York is a dish that has a particular shape and form. There's a broth, there's the shape of an apple, there's always an apple in every version of Autumn in New York, but Autumn in New York, the recipe changes with every season. Uh -huh. And so summer Autumn in New York is different than fall Autumn in New York or winter or spring. And so the idea that a recipe and an idea can evolve over the seasons just the way a jazz standard is sung by different uh performed by different musicians and so this relationship with music and a city that where Massimo and I met and that we love and adore and then the next course we serve uh this summer we were serving pesto in abstract which hmm. is uh not a pasta with pesto but the idea that a pesto is an idea and then it can be made with whatever, whatever ingredients you have available and are in your region or in your pantry and so we were putting together basil but other herbs and trying to make a pesto that has a resounding flavor of basil and of that traditional pesto recipe but can also expand into touch other flavors um, it was a custard made with pine nuts and parmigiano reggiano mm. and then this very intense uh, pesto different herbs from the garden changing constantly so um, your your garden itself is also bringing a lot into the kitchen yes this this dish was definitely inspired by the marie luigi garden and we had the green beans that we had grown here and our potatoes and so it was an ode to that kitchen now that dish is transferred into the fall and it's become um snails under the snow and this is a story about um massimo looking out at the winter landscape uh the snow falling outside thinking about where the snails were, whether they were living under the snow, how many layers of earth they had crawled under to stay warm and stay alive. And so he recreated this sort of sense of the layers of, um, of the, um, the earth itself. There's toasted uh, hazelnuts, there's breadcrumb, there's coffee grinds, there's a little bit of smoky whiskey in there, uh, porcini mushroom, uh, gelatin, all these very earthy flavors put together to recreate a sense of um, what's under the, the surface of the earth. And then a classic snails with parsley and mm. butter. And on top of this, this very light foam of garlic as if it was oh. the snow. And so this is a poetic dish and also a dish about 
about the changing of the seasons and asking questions about nature. Um, then we move on to our what we would like to call like the diva plates and the diva plates is the heart of this menu and they are some of our most classic iconic dishes five ages of parmigiano reggiano uh the crunchy part of the lasagna which is playing with the million traditions of lasagna and turning it into uh kind of a, um, a playful dish for children Adults who want to be children, eat with your hands. The lasagna, Massimo tells a story about growing up in a large family in Emilia Romagna where all his brothers were always fighting about taking off the most imperfect burned corner the of the burnt lasagna. The corner, yeah. And so we've reconstructed the burned corner and sharing that That's burnt corner part. memory with everybody. And then uh, uh, the main course is called Beautiful Psychedelic Veal. <laughs> not flame grilled. This is a dish based on um, a painting by Damien Hirst that we saw in 2012 in a Burger King during the Olympics, a huge spin painting. And it's all about the combination of fast and slow, pop art and fine art, fine dining and popular dining, and how you can um, bring that together in a plate and share all of that with our guests. Basically, we cook a piece of veal uh, sous vide, which is very slowly cooked as opposed to a fast hamburger on the grilled. It has smoky flavors that we give it from um, basically turning all of our vegetable trimmings into a carbon ash and painting it with this carbon ash. This one small piece of meat is then surrounded by vegetable uh, I would say vegetable paint in a way. Um, there are five different colors. There's red, which is a beet and balsamic vinegar. There's a green chlorophyll. There's a yellow pepper. There's a um, orange pumpkin now uh, and a nice creamy splash potato. It's not a mashed potato. And so these colors are splashed onto the plate. You get more vegetables in one dish than you could ever imagine. <laughs> and they create this very colorful painting psychedelic. based on psychedelic Damien Hirst. Uh, and then the last three courses, I can't reveal them all because I don't want to... There's one surprise in there. But basically, we have two desserts. And what Massimo likes to call before the dessert a modernist sorbet. Of course, knowing Massimo, it's not cold. It has <laughs> nothing to do with ice cream. It's an ode to his mother and his grandmother and a recipe that he will not change and maybe should not change. And kind of a message after all these fun adventures in cooking and playing with your grandmother's recipe that in the middle of a menu like that, you can always have something that reminds you that something should never change. Now, the last question I wanted to ask you then is why is it called Casa Maria Luigia? Well, the former owner was named Luigi Magelli. Luigi Magelli inherited this property from his father, who was, uh, had a, was a big landowner and running a working farm. But Luigi Magelli had grown up quite spoiled and went to university and lived in town and was a little bit of a... Uh, what they call in Italy a fighetto. So he had, was <laughs> cultured in the arts and he thought, well, why am I going to move out to the countryside and run a farm? That's, you know, that's not what I was, didn't go to college for that. So um, he inherited this property and he was actually the one in 1900 who began transforming it into what it is today. So there was already this seed planted that this should be a place to entertain people. He created a, a, a pond so that people, that his guests could come and he could take them around the agricultural Which pond. Which we're sitting next to right now. <laughs> and the little boat ride and a boathouse. Um, he also created a, a fountain, a grotto fountain, so the guests would come and visit that fountain. He planted trees in not a random way what in any way whatsoever very intentional landscaping and you told and me these trees were always beautiful here. 12 I mean, from oak when you trees uh, and a lay of uh, yew trees um uh taxodiums it created a a, a root a cellar there's like a weeping willow i think there's a weep an old weeping willow and so there was already this already this idea that the landscape was not only for agriculture but also for Leisure, pastime, uh, lying out on the lawn, looking at the roses. And so more than a hundred and, you know, 17 years later, we come across the property. Of course, some of the trees had been lost, but there was still good bones and beautiful uh, heritage trees here. And so we tried to work with that, not transform it too much, keep it very much in its with its identity and just keep the party going as Luigi Magelli would be happy. So the L and the M were already there. It was already part of the DNA, and that's Laura and Massimo. And um, Massimo's mother's name was Maria Luigia. Maria Luigia is not only Massimo's mother, but she was also the second wife of Napoleon, who uh, oh, Napoleon Parma. gave her 
the city of Parma. And Colorno is where she had her, um, her beautiful property. And so the thing about Maria Luigia, Massimo's mother was named after Maria Luigia, is that she was loved and adored because she brought culture and art and music and theater to the city of Parma. And in a way that Luigi Magelli had also brought culture and landscaping and uh, the idea of entertaining here to this property. And so Massimo and I, as L and M, or M and L, wanted to contribute to that as well, bringing our art and our love of music and food once again to this property. So layers and layers and layers of meaning. I think you guys have done an excellent job. And I think every everything about what you guys are doing is also about telling a story, a story from the past, but also a story that then I or somebody else can tell too. You know, you walk out of here with stories, which I think is, you know, when you when you were describing his dishes and all the stories that go into what you're eating, or when you're describing the tortellante, which we'll talk about a little bit later, or just Luigi. I mean, these are beautiful stories, and there are so many stories that come out of just staying here. I can't, um, I can't wait to walk into the kitchen. <laughs> let's see what's in the kitchen. Yeah, let, let, let's do that. So thanks so much for sitting with me. I had a wonderful conversation. I'm so happy. This space, I, I automatically always feel at home here. So thank you. Hey, I'm back and just finished listening to the outtakes of this episode. Lara and I had a great conversation about biking in Modena. I love how she captures Modena and the Emilia Romagna vibe in words. Listen in. I'm gonna get a mountain bike. That's my that's my that's my Christmas wish. You see my Christmas wish list. You seem like you're going. Okay, you check in a little. You think, but you seem like you're doing a lot, like a lot of distance. Is that correct? Yes. Because I see it on the I see it on Instagram. I'm starting, and I haven't been boasting. I've just did a hundred in Parma over the weekend. This gravel, they're all well. These things about gravel that's so cool is there's this whole non-competitive gravel world, which they organized. 100, 150 kilometer rides on a Sunday. One was the Delta, the Po River from Argenta to Comanche. So you're doing this with other people? Doing this with other people. There's a whole calendar. Every Sunday I could about be out with different people. Just in Emilia Romagna. Yep. I, I make I this face because you're so lucky with this countryside because it's just, there's so much to do. So uh, Saturday I, I drove stuff. to Parma. We headed off at 8 o'clock. And, you know, six hours with some breaks, we, people were back. And then you have Gnocco Frito and Salumi with this whole group. Some are ex-professional cyclists. Other people are young hipsters. How did you get into this? And uh, Just because I was here. So uh, Maria Luigia, Casa Maria Luigia, is located between um, the Parnata River, the Torrente Tepido, which is uh, a small river, and then, um, not too far away, about half an hour biking, there's also the um, Secchia, the Fiume Secchia. So it's between these rivers, and that historically, Modena has been fighting with Bologna and its neighbors over these rivers and who owns the rights to the rivers, things like that. But five minutes from here, I discovered the banks of the rivers in Italy are so amazing because they're raised bank, uh, river banks. So when you're raised, it's a flat landscape here except when you head up to the hills. But basically, the agricultural fields are flat landscape, but the riverbeds are raised 20, 30 meters above, and so really? you have this great view of the landscape. So you're, you're oh, wow, you're above everything then. Um, I don't think, because I'm trying to think, when because when we ride in Rome, we're like, our banks are below. The riverbanks are raised up above. That awesome. is partially because they also serve as barriers. So mm. when the rivers overflow, Flow. so that they don't go into uh, properties, townland, you know, churches. They've always, the raised riverbanks were part of the irrigation system and a way of protecting right. um, homes and, and, and agricultural fields from being overflown. So over, do, the, do over. you do this every week? Because I feel like on Instagram you do it a lot and you do it in the morning, which makes me feel like I'm like, I got to get up now too. <laughs> Um, I think it's part of a transformation that's happened since we started working on this project, Casa Maria Luigia. So the last 25 years, I've been in the center of Modena. My home is there. The restaurant is there. Our whole life is there, whether it's between the market, uh, going around the streets for uh, the artisans we have, our team. Uh, we flow out onto the streets. We have a building across the street where we have our prep kitchen and then the restaurant. And so I've always been on the cobblestones of Modena. Two years ago when we brought this property, I'm not that far away. It's 15 minutes by car, 12 kilometers, but it's a whole different Emilia Romagna. It's a whole different landscape. I'm surrounded by agricultural fields, by rivers, 
bicyclists. So um, my connection with nature is changing. My desire also to spend more time outside is changing. My time outside used to be spent walking my dog, and now my time outside is spent taking care of the gardens, taking care of the vegetable garden, getting on my bicycle, walking the fields, meeting with our local uh, neighboring farmers, just to know what's going on around me. Um, and so uh, my whole relationship with Modena has actually changed. I was here 26 years, and I didn't know that all of this existed, and yet it was just... 15-minute drive from from the restaurant. So it's amazing what you discover when you get out of your comfort zone, physically, mentally, emotionally, and then decide that you're going to get to know something else and get to know it intimately. And commit to it, yeah. But does you know it's kind of funny because everything that you said that you that you got to know reminds me of the things of what I was growing up with, you know, like bike riding everywhere, knowing all my neighbors, gardening, and you know, I live in a city as well. And I don't do that anymore at all. I walk my dog. That's and sometimes I ride my bike, but my bike is not for bike riding as much as it's for transportation. Right, for city riding yeah. and getting from one place to the other. So it's kind of like a return. What you've described for me would be a return to my childhood when it was just everything was outside and it was great. Well, maybe there's this, you know, I turned 50, um, February 2018. And um, I have to say that turning 50 was this moment where uh, I really kind of embraced the idea that I sleep to wake. There's so many things left to do, so many things I still have to discover about myself, but not only about myself, about the area that I live in and the place that I've committed to uh, to live and to promote and uh, falling in love with so many different parts of Emilia Romagna. For more information on Casa Maria Luigia, go to casamarialuigia.com. And you can find all the information and links for Casa Maria Luigia and more on my website, ciaobella.co. Ciao, Bella. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ciao, Bella. If you'd like to know more about today's guest, please visit ciaobella.co and click on the podcast link or go directly to ciaobella.co backslash podcast. Want more Italy? You can find all my episodes on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher. When you have time, subscribe to iTunes and rate the podcast. What are you waiting for? And if you want to be part of the podcast, email me or DM me your Italy questions. To learn more about me and my work, go to my website, ericafirpo.com, and follow my Italy adventures on Instagram at ericafirpo. Ciao, bella! And a very big thank you and hug to Massimiliano Yonta and Disc to Disc Studios, the producers of Ciao Bella who continue to make me sound and feel great.